This episode of the Coin World Podcast is brought to you by Amos Advantage and the Coin World Premier Slab Coin Holders. Keep your coins protected with the Coin World Premier Slab Coin Holders. These holders seal tightly to ensure the look and feel of a slab without the expense. With the versatile Premier Coin Holders, you can mix and match your slabbed and unslabbed coins. These are sold in packages of three and are available in 40 different sizes. Check out the Coin World Premier Slab Coin Holders and all the other coin collecting accessories at AmosAdvantage.com. Now sit back and enjoy the show. Welcome to the Coin World Podcast. Here are your hosts, Chris Bullfinch and Jeff Stark. Welcome to the Coin World Podcast. I'm Chris Bullfinch. This week, we're only running an interview. I spoke with Robert Wright, the Paul Coverdell Distinguished Visiting Fellow of Policy Studies at Georgia College. A financial historian, he is the author of One Nation Under Debt, Corporation Nation, and The Genealogy of American Finance, among a number of other titles relating to American financial history. Please enjoy. I'm very lucky today to be joined by Robert Wright, the Paul Coverdale Distinguished Visiting Fellow of Policy Studies at Georgia College and author of a number of books on financial history, including One Nation Under Debt, Corporation Nation, and The Genealogy of American Finance. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Chris. So a lot of collectors of coins and paper money understand financial history through the lens of collectible artifacts, whether it's promissory notes printed and issued during the Revolutionary War, whether it's demand notes and the early circulating federally issued currency at the uh, outset of the Civil War, or the first Federal Reserve notes issued you know, between 1914 and 1918. Do you think that that's a reasonable lens through which to understand financial history? Is that a reasonable jumping off point? Uh, sure. I, I mean, really anything can be a can be a jumping off point. And if that's what floats your boat, gets you excited, then super. We've had conversations with a few different guests in the past who have discussed the relationship of the American people to paper money and other sort of paper financial instruments. And the wildcat banking era complicates a simple understanding of money as the purview of government. How has the consolidation of authority over issuing paper money specifically, how has that changed the landscape of American finance? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I thought this was an hour-long uh, podcast. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's quite complex. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, could, could easily spend uh, years <laughs> discussing that. Did you have a particular uh, – Sure. Sure. Uh, I guess I was interested in One Nation Under Debt in particular. I was interested in your sort of consideration of debt as being fuel for national development. And it seems like the state's ability to issue paper money and currency in general would be tremendously important to establishing a, a sound financial system. I guess I was just hoping if you could characterize how American finance evolved a pace of the government's ability or lack of ability to issue paper currency. You know, it's probably best to start in the colonial period. Before there's a United States, there are just, you know, colonies along the eastern the eastern seaboard. And they were governed separately with oversight from London. And there were all sorts of restrictions on their trade and their ability to create their own money supply. So at first, you know, they're doing a lot of a lot of things on book account. So 
neighbors are you know trading with each other they're not bartering with each other as often stated but rather they are engaging in bilateral trade of goods and services that are denominated in a monetary uh, unit of account. This confuses most people to no end um, because if you look at an account book, you know, in a period, you'll see, oh, this guy's exchanging eggs and he's getting mowing services, you know, of Hayfield, say, uh, in return. You know, that looks like barter. But actually what's going on is they are assigning a monetary value to eggs and they're assigning a monetary value to the mowing service. And this can go on for years, decades even, and there's no need to settle up the balances because the people are known uh, to each other. Uh, They have stakes in the community. The only time that there would be a settle up it would be if the balance of trade, so to speak, between the households got too uh, uneven and uh, one one side wanted, uh, you know, a cash to either put the balance back to zero or at least to uh, reduce the, the indebtedness of one of the parties. But usually it goes back and forth, you know, back and forth. Sometimes I'm your creditor, sometimes I'm your debtor, and it doesn't really matter until one of us dies or decides to move someplace else. So those book account balances could take the form of a promissory note uh, at some point if uh, one part or the other you know, got worried about the sort of uh, legality or formality of the balance. Basically, one party would say to the other, yes, I owe you so many shillings or so many pounds, then that would become enforceable in court. The other nice thing about putting a debt into a promissory note form was that it would make it negotiable. So if I wrote a promissory out note out to you and I owe you two pounds Pennsylvania currency, say, uh, you could then sell that to someone else. And then I would owe that third party and you could get some amount of that debt in cash. Is this all making sense so far? It absolutely makes sense. And that's an interesting way to view paper money as a manifestation of accounting, a manifestation of a form of accounting, of, of, of sort of an account. Well, yeah, we're, we're not to paper money yet. <laughs> That's just the baseline. Right, right, right. Um, of, of what's what's going on, right, in the economy. So uh, right. and, and I'm talking about two private parties here. Right. So basically people can work, work these things out themselves, or at least they could in, in that period you know, people with substantial stakes in their communities, because that reduces stuff that economists talk about, like moral hazard and adverse selection and whatnot. The chances of one side, you know, stealing from the other was quite low. So what happens, though, when the government's involved and the government wants to provide some sort of uh, public good, like military defense, how does the government get paid? Well, I'd assume the traditional, at least the way I would think about it, is they would either have to levy taxes or borrow money. Right. They levy taxes. What are the taxes going to be paid in in a system with this bookkeeping system between private parties that I've described? Well, it seems like it would have to be paper then because 
I mean, my understanding of the economy of the colonies is that there wasn't a lot of species circulating. And so it was really difficult to and a lot of the taxes that were owed to the crown had to be paid in specie as well. So there wasn't a lot of hard money circulating. So there would have to be paper financial instruments. Well, actually, the first expedient was for the for the uh, farmers to actually pay the government in farm commodities. So, you know, hogs, tobacco, wheat and so forth. It was called country pay, and the government uh, basically established a, uh, uh, you know, the price at which they would receive these uh, agricultural commodities for taxes. And to some extent, you know, some some of those things could simply be used to, you know, do things like feed troops, or the colonial government could, you know, collect these things in the hinterland and accumulate them in eastern seaboard city. And then sell them to merchants who could then export them. But as you can imagine, that system had all kinds of flaws to it. You know, if you had a tax burden of four bushels of wheat, you're not going to put your best wheat into those bushels, right? You're going to use your your worst wheat, maybe mixed in with some weeds and what have you. Also, when those agricultural commodities made it to market, their market price wasn't as high as, you know, what the government credited for the taxpayers for. So the government wasn't getting as much in tax revenue as it uh, anticipated, hoped, or or needed to fund this public good of, of warfare. So that's when a couple of colonies, especially first Massachusetts, came up with the notion of let's issue what they called uh, bills of credit. And these were pieces of paper that were issued to military contractors and soldiers and were payable back to the colonial government that issued them for taxes. So it's a form of what's called in the literature tax anticipation script where you know we anticipate calling these back in and, and redeeming them, so to speak, in the future. And so they're issued and they circulate. And then what happens next is a function of a number of variables related to how many are issued, basically. And the commitment or the credibleness of the commitment of the colonial governments to uh, actually redeem them via taxes. And so what you see is in the extreme north and the extreme south of the colonies, governments issuing paper money to fund wars in quantities that exceeded their demand at the current price level. So in that case, the bills of credit and the parlance and understanding of the day depreciated or in simpler terms, or the way we think of it today, there was price inflation. The middle colonies had a much better record because there was less military stress on them. One of the colonies in Pennsylvania was pacifist, led by Quakers for some time. And the other middle colonies like New York mostly had to contend with American Indians rather than having to contend with American Indians and the French uh, or American Indians and the Spanish, like the extreme northern and, and southern colonies. 
You mentioned something as you were describing the sort of the shift from taxes in the form of commodities into government tax script that you alluded to. You said, you know, the credibility of the government's ability to meet its written obligations to the extent that these records exist. What was the public's impression of the government's ability to meet its obligation? Did they tend to trust these notes or was there a great deal of leeriness about them? That's written in their price, right? We don't need to know what each individual sure. thought about it. So this gets us into very tricky area to, uh, to discuss, and that is what exactly is the value of these bills of credit? Stamped on their, on their face in most instances, they are you know, stated in terms of pounds, shillings, and pence in the British style. So on a base 20 rather than in a decimal system, whereby 12 pence equaled one shilling and there were 20 shillings in a pound. That's one part of this, <laughs> but that still doesn't tell us what exactly this you know, value is supposed to represent. Basically, what it meant was if you had a one pound note that was issued by Pennsylvania, that was one pound of quote unquote Pennsylvania currency, which is not the same as one pound sterling. Sterling is the name of the unit of account that's used in Britain proper in the home islands. Uh, one pound Pennsylvania currency is a pound as it was defined in colonial Pennsylvania. And it changed over time, but by the late colonial period, all of the colonies had ratings um, for major coins. Uh, a lot of times they're on a de facto silver standard. So the ones that financial and monetary historians look at tend to be the rating for the dollar, by which I do not mean the American dollar today, uh, I mean the Spanish silver dollar, which is a silver coin that was widely used in international trade. So in Pennsylvania, a pound meant a Mexican Spanish silver dollar rated at seven shillings and six pence, Pennsylvania currency. You cross the border into New York, and a New York pound is equal to a Mexican dollar rated at eight shillings. So it has a just a different nominal valuation in these different colonies. And by the way, the eight shillings in New York is why stocks on the New York Stock Exchange until, oh, I've forgotten the year, but about 20 years ago, uh, they finally decimalized. But before that, prices were quoted for stocks were quoted in eighths of a dollar. And that harkens all the way back to the colonial period and this rating of the Mexican dollar as eight shillings. To make change, they would sometimes literally take a dollar and cut it into eight parts. So each part would be worth, in New York, each part would be worth exactly one shilling. If you remember the old song, shave and a haircut, two bits. Yep. The two bits means a quarter, 25 cents because an eighth of a dollar is 12.5 cents. So two bits is equal to 25 cents or a quarter. 
Right, or one quarter of the coin in the cases of where they, they would cut the Spanish mill dollar into either quarters or eighths. Or eighths, and, exactly. And sometimes they'd stamp them with either with a Roman numeral to reference the number of bits in case people weren't seeing which physical fraction of the coin it was. They'd, they'd have the stamp on it too. That's a Those are rare but popular collectibles as well. Oh, I bet. <laughs> So yeah, so it, it all goes back to this uh, to this rate, and you know Massachusetts was one of the colonies that was in the north that fought a lot of wars against the French and the Indians, and it had you know pretty disastrous experience with bills of credit in terms of very high level of inflation or depreciation. The depreciation, by the way, they thought of a, thought about gold and silver coins, the full body gold and silver coins, the specie as quote-unquote real money. So they didn't think so much of the price level is rising or inflation. They thought about the bills depreciating or losing value against the ultimate standard of value, which is gold and or silver. So the bills of credit depreciated big time uh, in, in all of New England. Rhode Island served as a kind of a money pump it figured out that its bills were circulating in other parts of New England. And so it could just keep pumping out bills of credit, bills of credit and getting valuable goods and services in return for printed pieces of paper. And so it really pumped up the money supply as well. So there was this great depreciation of bills of credit in New England that led to a currency reform. And after that currency reform, you end up with a rating of Massachusetts currency Right, the unit of account as equal to six shillings to the dollar. So as all these different sort of bills of credit systems are evolving, how did the colonists contend with whether it was depreciation like you mentioned in Rhode Island or whether it was just the fact that the bills weren't necessarily trading at par with one another? Was that just a cross that they had to bear in terms of interstate trade or were there sort of systems in place to try to, you know, to try to reckon with the difficulty presented by the different types of currency? Well, we're still in the colonial period, right? So right. Um, it would be intercolonial trade. Oh, excuse me. Sorry. Yes. It's okay. <laughs> um, and the other thing is that while there is intercolonial trade, it tends to be limited to sort of natural systems. So most of the trade that's New England or New York or Philadelphia or Pennsylvania or, or Virginia or South Carolina is doing is with the West Indies, right? There's not a whole lot going on between the colonies outside of these certain natural economic zones that happen to cross colonial borders. So one good example of this is New Jersey, which even to this day is essentially two states. There's a state, a northern New Jersey, or what used to be called eastern New Jersey, that is focused on New York City. And there's a western New Jersey along the, the Delaware River and down what's called South Jersey now that trades with Philadelphia. And so New Jersey's colonial monetary history is extremely complicated because it depends where you are in New Jersey <laughs> in terms of the sort of, of focus of the, of the monetary system. And there was another area like that in Connecticut, in Western Connecticut, where they were much, in Southern Connecticut, where they're much more likely to trade with Long Island and hence New York City rather than Boston, simply because the transportation 
costs were much lower just to, you know, take a schooner across Long Island Sound rather than trying to trek stuff over land or up the Connecticut River Valley or whatever, and then over to Boston. So that part of Connecticut was using, quote unquote, York shillings to reckon with. The same thing with what uh, happened to what became Vermont, which of course wasn't a colony of its own in the, in the colonial period. It was highly tied to uh, New York as well. To the point that um, historian um, Bob Shallop found a farmer in Vermont in the 1840s who was still uh, recording transactions in his account book, because that system you know, continues well through the 19th century. But he was still recording things in his account book in the 1840s as York Shillings. And Bob, bless his heart, couldn't figure what this meant because he was thinking that it was colonial bills of credit were still in circulation in the 1840s. So after many emails, I convinced him what this farmer really meant by a York shilling was, of course, 12 and a half cents or an eighth of a dollar. At that time, meaning, though, a U.S. dollar, because uh, one of the brilliant things that Hamilton did of many was to basically adopt the amount of silver in the average Mexican dollar, the silver coin, as the standard for the U.S. dollar. And that shows how persistent that way of thinking or that way of denominating was, that into the 1840s, people were still thinking in terms of, in this case, York shillings. So it seems like these colonial monetary systems left a serious imprint on the colonists that lasted quite a long time. Yes. And that's the key too. people who grew up in the colonial period and learned that system tended to keep using it. But younger people coming up after the revolution and after the Hamilton financial revolution are thinking in terms of a decimalized dollar. How was that shift come about in sort of the public mind? Because I, I could imagine someone who grew up on one standard trying to figure out how to use the U.S. dollar once it was introduced. And yeah, of course, there's the continental dollar and there were all kinds of financial mechanisms used to raise money for the revolution. I mean, I imagine that that transformation was very profound. Yeah, it wasn't really all that profound. Some, sometimes people get confused. And they talk about exchange rates. Like, what was the exchange rate between the York shilling and a, and a U.S. dollar? There were no exchange rates. It was it, It's a translation, really. Right. It's just two different languages for expressing the same amount of silver. It was really entirely weight-based. The denomination was, to some extent, irrelevant. It was about the weight in silver or Exactly. So it doesn't matter if you call it a Frankenstein or a dollar or a York shilling or whatever. As long as everyone was clear on the silver that was being expressed, there were no problems. Now, sometimes you would get people in, you know, there'd be contracts written up, like in the colonial period in places like New Jersey <laughs> that I already described, where they would use, they denominate something, say, at 10 pounds. And they wouldn't specify whether they were talking about New York pounds or Pennsylvania pounds or sterling even. And that could lead to, uh, you know, all kinds of misunderstandings and renegotiations and sometimes court cases about which unit of account was actually intended by the parties. But for, for the most part, and, and by the federal, the federal period, it's just a matter of translation between these different ways of, of thinking about a sum of silver. How did these ways of transacting in whichever, you know, your word translation was interesting because as we just talked about, weight was the kind of fundamental 
issue or the fundamental quality that really mattered in trade and in transactions. How did all of these different, whether it's the states issuing bills of credit, whether it's any of the the trade coming in from overseas, how did the revolution impact all of this? Because it probably represented a fairly significant disruption to a lot of these trading communities. Oh, it definitely did. To the point that, and, and it took me a while to, to, to figure this out, but after about the 20th account book, that I looked at at the Historical Society of Pennsylvania and other, you know, other archives up and down the Eastern Seaboard, it finally dawned on me what was going on. Because usually what you'd see is you see very nice account book, right? Doing the sorts of exchanges that I described earlier, where they're recording commodities and services being traded, but they're recording it in the local unit of account. And then you hit 1775, 1776, 1777, and the account books stop. And then they pick up again in the late 1780s usually. And so some other people have noted this and they've come up with the you know sort of goofy explanations like, oh, they were too busy to put stuff in account books or whatever. I think what happened is that the economy essentially became monetized in that period, meaning that they, they stopped with the account books and they're doing everything in cash. And the reason they could do that is because the economy was flush with cash instruments, with the uh, continental dollars, the paper money being issued by Congress, and by uh, now state bills of credit issued by the revolutionary governments at the state level during the Revolutionary War. All the old colonial bills of credit, which there were still some of, but they didn't abound when the revolution hit, of course, became valueless. But the war effort is so big and so prolonged, and there's very few other good ways for the rebel governments to come up with the needful that uh, they they issued lots and lots of of paper money. And rather than, than trust your neighbor or rely on some unit of account that you don't know if it's going to exist or not, I think they just uh, they just started using cash essentially for everything. How did the state bills of credit contrast functionally with the colonial bills of credit? I imagine that the infrastructure for processing them had developed quite a bit. It's pretty much the same system, even down to using the same printers and the same paper stock and such. They came up with ways of retiring paper money in the colonial system that were not entirely satisfactory. Early on, they thought it was a good idea to burn the bills once they were retired from circulation. The problem with that is that there's no remaining evidence, right? So a bunch of guys could get together and say, oh yeah, we burned up those bills of credit, no problem. Here's the ashes, right? (laughs) Well, you can't tell that those are ashes of bills of credit. So they still had hardly perfected things. What banks did later on, issuing banknotes that were redeemable in specie, They didn't burn them, they kept them, but they defaced them in obvious ways, like punching huge holes in them and then putting them on wooden rods uh, so that there was evidence that they had been removed from circulation, evidence that auditors could go through uh, to make sure that the notes had been tired. You got a lot in the colonial period and apparently also in the revolution of treasurers receiving bills of credit for tax payments 
And instead of retiring the bills, they put them out on loan to their buddies. More and more instances of, of this are, are cropping up. But the most infamous uh, case uh, occurred in Virginia, where the, instead of burning them, the treasurer was, <laughs> was, was, was making loans with them and earning interest off the, off the loans. Which gets us to the, to the second type of bill of credit. So we've already talked about the tax anticipation script where you're fighting a war and you, so you're issuing this paper money in order to pay suppliers and to pay soldiers and whatnot. Another type that developed was the, the loan office model where somebody with land generally, but sometimes uh, other assets like, like silver plate would come into the office and pledge the physical assets as collateral for a loan that is made to them in bills of credit. And then they spend the bills of credit on whatever they like and make uh, periodic interest payments, sometimes spread 7, 10, 12, 15, 15 years. So, so very much like amortized uh, mortgage today. And this was so successful in Pennsylvania that Pennsylvania was actually uh, able to get rid of some taxes because it was earning so much money running its, um, general, its general loan office. As you can imagine, though, when there's macroeconomic difficulties, like after the French and Indian War and during the American Revolution, this system doesn't work all that well and doesn't generate enough interest for wartime expenditures. It was fine when Pennsylvania was, uh, was at peace. There was one in New Jersey that, that worked uh, pretty well too. Fine when it's at peace, but uh, with the major exertion from the Revolutionary War, it just that sort of institution just didn't generate enough interest to, to fund the war effort. And that difficulty was part of the impetus for trying to establish a central bank in the United States. And of course, the measure essentially failed, though the Bank of the United States was chartered in 1791 and its charter lasted for 20 years. There was a resistance to the federal government taking on all of the state debt from a lot of interest that Thomas Jefferson comes to mind. How did early legislators right after the American Revolution, how did they cope with the difficulties you're alluding to? Well, right after the American Revolution, they, uh, you know, in, in many states, they, they continue to, to issue bills of credit, some as tax anticipation script, and some try to uh, reprise Pennsylvania's um, colonial success, and they, they establish loan offices. There's also some freeing up of trade that allows, you know, more of the money supply to be filled with gold and silver coins. There are always some gold and silver coins in, in circulation, or almost always in the colonial period, but they tended to leave quite quickly. In fact, there's a kind of famous, at least in colonial monetary circles, poem about a Johannes, a Portuguese gold coin. You know, this poem's told sort of from the perspective of the coin <laughs> and, you know, just basically how quickly it paid a bunch of debts in the colony before a merchant got its hands on it and shipped it back overseas. During the revolution, basically the entire stock of gold and silver coins gets hoarded. It goes underground, sort of like the fiduciary coins are being hoarded uh, right now due to inflation expectations, right? So people took their gold and silver coins and hid them for the duration, basically. 
under the expectation that turned out to be correct, that there would be a high level of inflation slash depreciation during the war. And it's only when the Continentals finally died, when, you know, their value went to like a thousand, a thousand to one. So a thousand paper dollars per one Mexican silver dollar. And people started to use it for things like wallpaper and kindling and toilet paper and whatnot, that those coins re-entered circulation. And then with the Revolution won, merchants are again, you know, able to engage in international trade and get coins into domestic circulation that way, which of course, well, I shouldn't say of course, because uh, you and your listeners probably don't know this because the book hasn't been published yet, but the Stamp Act troubles were not about ideology, uh, it turns out. The Stamp Act troubles were about major macroeconomic disturbance, a recession or a depression, and a financial crisis that occurred because of British trade policies and monetary policies that prevented colonial governments from issuing bills of credit at the same time that the specie was drying up because of the end of the French and Indian War and all the nice privateering money that was being and, and smuggling money that was coming into the colonies during the war. And the British really cracked down on that to an extent that uh, most people don't realize. And they also said no more issuing bills of credit as a legal tender. And so the money supply in the colonies uh, plummeted. That made real interest rates spike. That made a lot of private loans, especially mortgages taken out during the war to default. And that led to a lot of foreclosures. And back then, if you ran into debt and couldn't pay your bills, there was no discharge procedure mandated by the government. Your creditors could put you in jail, special debtors' prisons. And the debtors' prisons were actually worse than the criminal jails. Because the criminal jails, at least the state had some interest in providing basic things like food and clean water and, and heat and whatnot. And the debtor's prison, all they did was confine people because the idea was uh, you owe money, you need to be coerced into coughing it up. So you're going to supply your own food and water and heat and clothes and bedding and so forth. It led to the death of, of many people who were not bad guys. They, they were not people who stole from their creditors. They're just people who borrowed high when real estate prices were high. And when real real estate place, prices plummeted, they couldn't sell their property for, for nearly enough to cover their debts. So all this is going on and is, is sort of the background to the colonist reaction to the Stamp Act crisis, much the way uh, that lockdowns, you know, in this current year were sort of the backdrop to the George Floyd protests. It was uh, the palpable injustices going on with British policies that sort of forced the colonist's hand. Um, and because of your audience, I should note that in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, the monetary situation got so bad that people were actually using squirrel scalp bounties as money. That's a fascinating form of currency. It reminds me of the leather and silk notes that were issued in, in Weimar, Germany during the period of hyperinflation in the early mid-1920s. People often get pretty creative with what they use as a circulating currency. Right. Now, this, this wasn't the squirrel scalps themselves. There was a bounty. There was a law. Right. So you shot a squirrel. You proved that you did it by cutting its little, cutting its little head off or the top part of its head. 
and then you would take those to the to the justice of the peace and he would issue you a handwritten note at one i think it was one pence per scalp so you know you shoot a dozen of these things you have a you have a nice cookout um, and also you take the scalps in and you turn it in for shilling promissory note. Usually, you know, in, in normal times, people would just hold on to these. And when the tax collector came along, they'd give it to the tax collector and that would reduce their tax by that amount. But in these desperate times, uh, people started to trade them from hand, from hand to hand, just like a private promissory note. So was that an effort on the part of the government to try to increase consumer spending and get some money into people's pockets? Or was that just a form of pest control? It was a form of pest control. It had been on the books for ages. It's just, you know, at, at that juncture, people who needed to pay a debt needed, <laughs> needed something. And that was the best of, uh, available instrument because the British are blocking trade. So they're blocking, you know, the flow of specie into the colonies and they and they said no more bills of credit. Hmm. Are there any other particularly evocative examples of that kind of improvisation, I guess you could call it? Not that I've run into. I haven't looked all that hard for other examples. A lot of sort of basic day-to-day stuff is going on using that book accounting system that I described uh, at the beginning of the podcast. It's just when you have somebody who dies or moves away or is running too big of a balance, you need cash to bills of credit or specie in in normal times and squirrel scout bounties in bad times um, (laughs) to reduce or pay off that debt. And of course, there weren't enough squirrels in in all of Pennsylvania to create enough squirrel scout bounty money to liquidate all of the, the real estate bubble that had gone bust. But it, you know, it's just a, a, a neat little form of what people do in, in dire, you know, in dire situations. You may have heard of uh, the tree money that evolved in the Pacific Northwest during the Great Depression when uh, the one local bank went under and the next bank is 50 miles away, you know, over three, over three mountains. It's amazing what, what people will do. And it's good to have that sort of cultural knowledge out there in case we ever face a situation like that again. I wanted to ask to try to bring this a little bit full circle. It seems like our nation you know, was born in with all of these different forms of debt that you've talked about. It reminds me of a book, uh, Republic of Debtors by Bruce Mann, which talks about how so much commerce and, and so much economic activity in the early republic and during the revolution and around the time of the French and Indian War, all of it relied so heavily on debt. How did debt exist in the minds of the colonists? How did they think about it? And how have we as Americans today inherited a particular understanding of debt from this period? Yeah. Or is there not a direct relationship? Well, I know Bruce. He's actually Elizabeth Warren's husband. I met him. Yeah. Yeah. I interviewed him for my honors thesis. I attached it as an appendix to my uh, to my <laughs> thesis. So I met him once too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's, he's a great scholar. But I, I think I wouldn't say that we based our economy on debt, I would say we base it on credit. Hmm. The distinction being that debt connotes somebody who is, you know, has outlays, expenditures that exceed their income over significant periods of time. Debt is based on economic weakness. Credit is based on economic strength, where somebody is borrowing money or resources that they are going to uh, make more productive. 
and use that to pay off the loan, or at least that's the expectation, right? So I would say that we base the the, the system more on on credit. After all, called the paper money bills of credit, not bills of debt. Hmm. The notion was that the government was um, going to provide this public good and it was going to leave everyone in the colony better off. And so they would be able to retire the bills of credit with no burden, with no hardship. Is a credit-based economy like you describe sustainable? Because it seems like if you extend a certain amount of credit, it can you know, incentivize or create economic growth. Well, oh no, credit is, is definitely sustainable. It's the debt that's not sustainable. With this distinction, you know, how does that debtor ever repay the debt if they are spending more than they were bringing in consistently? Well, and it seems like deficit hawkery has to some extent defined our politics for a long time. And we're running into periods of deficit spending. It's on a lot of people's minds, I guess, which is why, which is why I'm asking about it. The, yeah. the extent to which we can run deficits in a way that doesn't eventually catch up with us. Uh, yeah, there's a great book. Uh, it's kind of a follow-up to One Nation Under Debt. Uh, it's by a guy named Bill White. He's a Democrat, used to be governor of Texas or ran for governor of Texas or some such thing. And it's called the, uh, the Fiscal Constitution of the United States. And it describes basically how we went from, the, the federal government went from a system of, of credit established by Alexander Hamilton to more of, of one of debt uh, starting uh, basically in the 1970s with this erosion of our, of our fiscal constitution. That'll be something I'll definitely put on my reading list, and perhaps some of our listeners will uh, will read it to try to get some perspective on yeah. on those changes that have occurred since the 1970s. I think it's public public affairs, circa 2015. Uh, oh, memory okay. serves. I, I say because you know he starts back in the in the time period I cover, you know, with one nation under debt, and starts with Hamilton, and describes very clearly Hamilton's um, notion of a of a fiscal constitution which basically is the government can run deficits when it needs to, like to fight existential wars, uh, to acquire new territory, like the Louisiana Purchase uh, and so forth. It just needs to slowly, methodically pay that down by running surpluses in good times. And that way we'll always have credit available, public credit as Hamilton called it. Right. So it's a question of being able to sustain oneself with credit through bad times and then prove the nation worthy of that credit in the good, I guess, to some extent. by paying. Yeah, because in, in good times, you're repaying it. And you don't have to be Jeffersonian about it and try to pay it all back in five years and distort the economy while you're doing it. <laughs> what happened in the 1820s and, and 18, 1830s with the sort of methodical paying off of, uh, of the Revolutionary War debt was, was very Hamiltonian. Because uh, it it didn't you know just destroy the economy, it was just uh, it was just prudent fiscal policy. Things are going good right now. There's no wars. Let's get this puppy taken care of, and that way we'll we'll have the credit that we need when something bad does happen, which is inevitable, and which started in 1861. Well, and there's the Jacksonian backlash too. Jackson's opposition to the Bank of the United States and and 
to some extent well, undermined. He, while he's, you know, against the second bank of the United States, right? Right. Um, yes. He's at the same time paying off the national debt. And one of the reasons why he says we don't really need this Bank of the U.S. anymore is because the national debt is paid off. His opposition to the institution almost presupposed that the U.S. wouldn't need to go into debt again. Well, it could always form another uh, central bank if it had to, which it did. Right. Right. <laughs> right. Or, or yeah. it could come up with a with an entirely new system and uh, leverage you know, what was learned uh, in the free banking uh, experiments in various states and apply it to the national level, uh, which is what it did during the, the Civil War, the National Banking Act. Right. Acts, right, where it, yeah. where it established not just one, but <laughs> lots and lots of banks with federal charters, but, uh, one, you know, ones that were uh, not nearly as scary because uh, they were they were much smaller but also served the purpose of being statutorily required to gobble up a bunch of government bonds. So in a way, it almost diffused a central bank over a whole bunch of different banks. So instead of having a central institution, you had a number of different institutions all tasked with taking up part of that, part right. Of that role. So, so, right. So there, there was no worry about it uh, becoming a quote-unquote monopoly. But at the same time, it served the purpose of buying a bunch of U.S. government bonds. You've written about bank consolidation. How has, how has that process evolved from the National Bank Acts? How have we gone from a position of all of the different, the thousands of wildcat banks to a handful of massive financial institutions? And obviously the Federal Reserve plays well, a Well, I, I, I wrote a book about it with Dick Silla, and I think you mentioned it at the top of the, the, top of the yep. hour. Yep. Yeah. The genealogy of American finance, and uh, you know, it's it's a lot of uh, merger and acquisition activity, basically. Once it became legal, right? You had mass bank consolidation. Do you see with the coronavirus crisis? Do you see another sort of wave of consolidation occurring in response to the economic hardship imposed by the crisis? Uh you know, it really depends when this thing ends. Any idea when this thing ends? you listen to certain stations and uh, you know this is going to go on at least another year uh, and if it does I could see a full-blown financial crisis one that we uh, we won't be able to stop because we don't have the you know the dry powder having it you used it all up with the accumulation of deficits most years since uh, since the 1970s and with the recent stimulus bills and whatnot. If we have this V recovery that uh, certain other uh, news outlets and politicians uh, seem to think is, is going on, then um, you know I, I don't think there'll be too much uh, consolidation to come from it. But it does look like we have moved kind of towards a Canadian system where the expectation is that the big banks will buy out any, any small banks that run into trouble. But uh, it might be the big banks again that get hit hardest. It's just, uh, it's very difficult to say uh, at this point because um, everything is, uh, is in flux. Well, on that somewhat concerning note, um, <laughs> <laughs> I want to thank you so much for, for taking the time. I mean, I'd love to keep this going, but I'm cognizant of, of the, the length of time and, and of your time as well. So the length of time we've been talking, I should say, and, uh, and of your time as well. So thank you so much again for, for taking the time to speak with me today. I, I know our listeners will find this very interesting. It provides sort of the 
economic backdrop of uh, some of the notes that uh, that we as collectors enjoy, um, you know, adding to our adding to our stores. So thank you so much again. Thank you, Chris. Take care. Thank you for listening to my interview with Robert Wright. If you enjoyed the interview or any of our previous content, please keep listening each week and remember to subscribe on whichever platform you use to listen to podcasts. Until next week, happy collecting. Thank you for listening to the Coin World Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and we'll see you next week. Send us your questions and feedback on Facebook at facebook.com slash coinworld or on Twitter at coinworld. Be the first to know about our next episode by signing up for our newsletter. Go to coinworld.com and click on free newsletter to sign up today. This episode of the Coin World Podcast was brought to you by the Coin World Premier Slab Coin Holders, available at Amos Advantage. These holders seal tightly to ensure the look and feel of a slab without the expense. With the versatile Premier Coin Holders, you can mix and match your slabbed and unslabbed coins. These are sold in packages of three and are available in 40 different sizes. So head over to AmosAdvantage.com to check out the Coin World Premier Slab Coin Holders and all of the other coin collecting accessories available there. That's AmosAdvantage.com.